This is a National Arts Center podcast. Find more great NAC podcasts on the performing arts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Center on iTunes and subscribe for free. Hello and welcome to the sixth Points of View podcast for the 2014-15 season. Presented by the National Arts Center English Theatre and coming to you from the Salon of Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. I'm Sean Fitzpatrick. One, two, three, and... Welcome to the Points of View podcast for the NAC English Theatre's 2014-15 season. Each episode, you will learn about English theatre productions through an encounter with the NAC English Theatre and two special guests offering unique perspectives on the piece. In this point of view, NAC English Theatre Artistic Director Jillian Kiley hosts a discussion with two special guests, lighting designer André Detois and local artist Cachiona Leger, about the creation of Take Me Back to Jefferson, the influence of Parisian masters of physical theatre such as Jacques Lecoq, and the Canadian theatre landscape. English Theatre's presentation of Take Me Back to Jefferson ran in the NAC Theatre March 25th to April 11th. For more information about the NAC English Theatre presentation of Take Me Back to Jefferson, please visit nac-cna.ca. Click on English Theatre. And now, here are Gillian Cowley, André Dutois, and Catriona Leger. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming to uh, The Points of View. Nice to see you again. My name is Jill Kiley. I'm the Artistic Director of English Theatre here at Canada's National Arts Centre. It's great to have you here. Uh, we're very proud to open uh, last night, Take Me Back to Jefferson, which in a previous incarnation was known as As I Lay Dying, uh, based on the William Faulkner novel. Some of you saw the show last night. Some of you are seeing it uh, this afternoon. You're in for something great, I think. Uh, we have some special guests with us today. Andre Dutois is the lighting designer. And um, we have a special guest in Catriona Leger, who's here uh, with us, and Sarah Stanley. And these two girls, uh, Sarah, of course, is the Associate Artistic Director here at the National Arts Center uh, with me. And um, a part of, uh, of what the conversation is this morning is about training and uh, and how it uh, affects and impacts the kind of uh, style of work that you're doing, um, which had a pretty big impact on the work that you saw last night. Uh, the two artists involved went to Lecoq in Paris, uh, the L'Ecole Jacques, Jacques Lecoq, and uh, they trained there. So it's a very specific uh, place. And uh, of course, Catriona trained at Gaulier, which is um, a kind of another school that, <laughs> that is very popular in, in Paris and has some of the similar training, and Sarah trained at Lecoq as well. So we'll be talking about uh, the influences of the schools on the style of work. And then, of course, we'll talk after with Andre about his lighting design for the show. Okay, so right to it. <laughs> I'll introduce uh, quickly Sarah Garten Stanley, who many of you will know as the Associate Artistic Director here at National Arts Center. She used to be the Artistic Director of Buddies and Bad Times, and she has done a million other things. <laughs> I didn't actually write down a bio for her. Because uh, <laughs> I feel like you know her. She's, uh, she's my number one. And, uh, and Catriona Leger is uh, here in Ottawa 
very lucky to have her with us. She spent the past 20 years working across Canada as an actor and director. Uh, she's a graduate of Ecole uh, Philippe Gaulier and holds a Bachelor in Fine Arts in Acting and an MFA from the University of British Columbia uh, in, uh, in Directing. She's currently based in Ottawa, where she's a core artistic member of Company of Fools, uh, the ever-popular Company of Fools, co-producer of Subdivision, and an instructor at Algonquin College, St. Lawrence College, and the University of Ottawa. Welcome, Catriona. Thank you for having me. And Sarah. Uh, so, Catriona. Dean and Mimi, who are also married uh, couple, um, they met at Ecole uh, Jacques uh, Lecoq, and, uh, and that had a huge influence on them. You're an actor and director here in Ottawa and elsewhere. Uh, you did some studying. Can you give us a taste about what you wrote your master's thesis about? Sure. Um, so I did study at Ecole Philippe Gaulier, as you said, which is, uh, Gaulier used to be a teacher at Lecoq, and uh, in the 80s he broke away and started his own school. And I was very fortunate to spend a year studying with him in Paris. And then when I came back to Canada, I was really reinvigorated. I felt really excited about some things that um, I had learned and I had experienced at that school. And I wanted to take that further into my own practice. So I went to do a master's of fine arts degree in directing. And that is a practical degree. So my thesis... Um, was a production, and I had spent my two years of my master's exploring how to, uh, sorry, I feel like I'm, p p p uh, exploring how to, um, uh, exploring different ways of, uh, of putting the approaches that I had learned through Goyer onto classical texts, and my thesis production was Romeo and Juliet. So um, it was sort of the culmination of all of the experiments I had, I had put these poor acting students through. Um, <laughs> but uh, I did an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet and a, a production that was mostly rooted in Buffon, which is, uh, well, I think we'll probably get into that a little bit later, but a, a sort of a theater of the grotesque. Um, and uh, uh, these grotesque creatures came together to tell this uh, this story for the audience in a very interactive and um, creepy and delightful and clownish way. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, but, great. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Okay. Uh, we'll get into Buffon in a second. Uh, Sarah, can you tell us uh, how the work of Lecoq influenced you as a, as an artist? Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's a great story actually. I went to see um, uh, Theatre Columbus, which is Leah Cherniak and Martha Ross do a show in the 80s in Toronto. It was called Cooking with Columbus. It was opening night and it was meant to be a cooking show where through you know all mishaps, all sorts of hilarity would ensue. But everything went wrong with the show that night too on top of it. So there's like double, double the comedy, unintentional all the while. And I decided that night that I had to go and study at Lecoq. It was just so full of life and joy. Um, but the influence is kind of undeniable. I mean, recently here in Ottawa, we saw Brimful of Asha. Uh, Ravi Jain made that with his mom. He's a Lecoq grad. Uh, grad. It's sort of the, the latest generation of real movers and shakers. Um, and as well, Andrew Shaver, who's uh, burning up uh, stages in Montreal and Stratford and Toronto. He as well. Um, and I think one of the core tenets uh, of Lecoq anyway is that in a way it's a directorless medium where everyone has an eye to the director 
direction of the piece. So that there's a sense of kind of a of a shared entrepreneurial um, meet, making of a, of a really well-functioning organism. Um, and so that has really impacted a lot on sort of the devised creation that we see in Canada. A lot you'll see through Magnetic North, um, a lot of the performances that come to us through that way, they're, they're not script-based. Uh, it doesn't mean that people don't have a facility for text, but they're not entering into the work from the text. They're entering into the work from creating a whole imagined environment and using just what's essential to tell the story. So those are some of the influences that I think have really had a huge impact on Canadian work. Can you speak a little bit about uh, Golier and how uh, this, the style influenced your own work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I came, I worked, always worked in physical theater uh, before I went to Goulier, and um, I was greatly inspired to go study with him through uh, through a wonderful theater artist named Anne-Marie Kerr, who I was fortunate enough to take a workshop with, just at a point in my career where I felt very uh, on the precipice of giving up, quitting. And uh, she just reminded me of everything I loved about theater and how I love to play and pretend and when I went to study with Goulier, um, I was terrified. I was so scared. He had this reputation of being very direct, we'll say, <laughs> just telling you immediately that you were terrible <laughs> and get off the stage. Um, but I, it was it was uh, two days into the workshop, I thought, this is the teacher I've been waiting for my whole life. Um, and uh, uh, what, what really I took away from that school, I think above everything, was... Um, a, an ability to harness my imagination, <laughs> to be aware of the grand fantasy and imagination that we hold within ourselves and how to put that onto the stage. And um, it, it, there are so many elements that come from that school that that I that I, that goes into my work, but that 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 whole they all come from the imagination and the and the ability to pretend and and the ability to have the audience engage their imagination as well. So the the it's like the the joy that a child has to play and to pretend. You have children playing house and mommy, daddy, look at me. I'm a mommy. I'm a daddy. And 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 how much we love to watch children and being able to harness that within ourselves uh, in a mature way that's accessible to an adult audience. I think that's a great gift that he yeah. gave me. And that's certainly reflected in, in what you see on stage. Uh, if you saw it last night, it's extremely sophisticated work, uh, but it's all invention. It's all play. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's it's very uh, beautiful to watch. Can you tell us a little bit about Buffon? Sure, uh, I love Buffon. So I hated it when I was at the school because I was terrible at it. But you know, we learn the most from our flops, right? So um, Buffon is like a uh, there. There are two two things about Buffon that I love. First of all, it's theater of the grotesque. So these, the, you know, the actor. Puts on their a deformed body. Their arms are bound. They have a humpback. They have no legs. They have one leg. They have um, you know, hands sprouting out from their chest. Um, a whole, you know, crazy wigs or makeup. And they, you know, they look like a monster basically <laughs> um, to start. Uh, but these bouffants, the, the idea is that they, they, they all live together and they're the outcasts of society. Society has put them, put them away, put, sent them out into the swamps to live. But they have something to say. They have something to say and they come to town, they lock the actors in the dressing room and they come out on stage en masse to expose the hypocrisy of society. But they have to be very, very clever about it because they are outcasts and society doesn't care much for them. So 
they have to be able to bring the audience in and know when to, when to pierce them, when to stab, and when to pull back. Um, and so first off, you know, that in and of itself, the visual quality of that is amazing. But what I love and what I take away from this, and I think it's an element of everything I do, whether there's a grotesque character or not, is that it gives the actor such power and sensitivity to be able to be on stage with a partner performing a scene, but also aware of uh, if a fly lands on the back of the wall or if somebody is shifting or or uh, bored <laughs> um, uh, or, you know, in a, in a sense, the audience is rebelling against you or, or not picking up what you're putting down. Um, it, it, it really can make for the actor um, sensitive and, and aware of the power of simple gesture and simple connection. Um, so I, I love it. It's just... It's terrifying to do, but then when you're when you're in front of Golier, who will hit his drum and yell at you until you're terrible, get off the stage. <laughs> um, but but the ability to sort of take that grotesque form and apply it to um, any work, I think, it, particularly classics for me, is, is very um, in, inspiring to do that. Uh, it's 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 a tool in and of itself that to make a powerful actor and a powerful performance. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about autocore, which is a Lecoq uh, style of creation? Yeah, and I just, I would love to say too that just that was partly a philosophical split between Lecoq and Goliet was around the political response to Clown and Buffon, and that Lecoq was a much more, he was uh, self-professed bourgeois, and uh, he was very comfortable with the, the comforts of life and a very middle-class French existence, and Goliet uh, railed against that, and so they had a difference of opinion, and it's curious because before that, uh, Lecoq had a big break with uh, Etienne de Croux, who was the, the master who gave us uh, Marcel Marceau and the 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 stripe the stripy guy with the um, you know with the flower and stuff. So there's been a really interesting political and philosophical um, transition between these different clowns over the ages. And of course, the clown is and onto the Buffon a very powerful force for political change. So it's really cool to kind of chart that journey. Um, Autocore was just very simply a weekly requirement that while at the school you had to present something every Friday in front of the whole school and in front of a panel of judges which, you know, benignly put, were like a, a firing squad. And basically, unlike the drum which Goliet is famous for, Lecoq was famous for saying, mais c'est nul ça, non, non, c'est nul, y'a, y'a, y'a rien là, rien. And he would look at all the teachers and say, like, isn't this right? It's how terrible it is? And we'd be up there going, <laughs> you know. And, but, but when it was good, you got the complete approbation and love. So it was a very strange thing, but it, it taught us how to understand from within whether the work was working without. And that's something, again, with the show today, the, the, it's directed from all the people who are within it. I mean, it's led by Dean and Mimi, and Mimi in particular, but it, in this in this instance, but it's just an interesting uh, thing that's taught. So Autocore was a requirement to come up with something brand new every week and perform it in front of about 100 to 150 people every week. So the stress level for that was pretty extreme and, and exciting. Thanks. Um, can you tell us, uh, Katrina, what do you think a physical approach to story can do that a text-based approach can't? Mm. Um, 
I, I, I respond to this question in a strong way because I feel like then it becomes like, why is physical better than text? So I don't want to take, I don't want to take sides, but um, I, I, I think that a physical approach really, I, I, personally, I feel like if we don't, if we look at the actor and we don't really care, we don't care what they're saying if we don't like what they're doing. You know, if I, I so I think that they work together very strongly. Um, first off, that, that physically, that I, physically they need to represent what they're saying, um, and that doesn't mean miming out everything that they're saying. Uh, Hello, how are you today? But um, so there, so there's that first of all to physically embody what's being said or what's not being said, and also to uh, I think I said this earlier, like to engage the imagination of the audience. Um, the audiences are very, very intelligent. And um, sometimes when we rely too much on the words, we lose the audience because they're like, oh, blah, 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 blah. What did he say? I didn't hear it. Who cares, right? But, um, and, and, and you risk checking out. But I think that a physical approach, really to give someone something to look at, to be engaged with, and to, and to be there and see somebody doing something live right in front of you, um, uh, using their physical instrument is really powerful uh, and exciting and engaging and rarely is it null <laughs> in my experience, right? Um, it, whether it's good or bad, that's up to the audience to decide. But But it's something special and I think it's something that not everyone has the skill, and it's not the ability, but not everyone has developed the skill to do it. Uh, so it's very, it becomes very, very special. Yes, I would never say that text-based or physical-based was better. I would never say that. <laughs> you know, I love them both. Uh, there's room for everyone. Um, but, uh, but it is pretty special, and, and you're right, it is about how it ignites the imagination. I would challenge anybody this afternoon to not see the horse. Just see if you can not see the horse. It's there. It's there. Sarah, can you just tell us, uh, to finish it off there, uh, what do you think a physical story can do that a text-based one just uh, can't? Well, I guess the one thing that, uh, that Lecoq was really strong at, uh, in printing on my brain anyway, is that there has to be a reason to speak. And so whether it's working with text or not, uh, that with actors or in performance to understand why you're speaking, like why you take that first word, as opposed to, oh, the word's just there, so I'm going to say it. And so it's, the, it's like Catriona was saying, it's the meeting place of the body and text together uh, make for the most uh, fully rounded theater. And I know you're about to move on to Andre, so I just wanted to say, Catriona's um, directing a show that's text-based, but I expect will be quite physical, um, at the Gladstone soon, right? Venus and Fur. Um, so um, I would check it out. It's a, it's a great uh, American piece, and yeah, it is quite physical and quite text-based, yeah? That's correct. It's also the first contemporary show I've ever directed, so I'm oh, really, really, really excited about it. Everything I do is classical, so this is, I'm stoked. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I saw, you, you did that Midsummer Night's Dream, and she this wonderful uh, Midsummer Night's. May I praise you for a second? Sorry, so marvelous Midsummer Night's Dream uh, that I saw. That was one of the best uh, of them that I've seen, and I've seen dozens of Midsummer Night's Dreams. And, and Catriona's was extraordinary, uh, but it was so physical. It was just so physical. People were running everywhere, and not just randomly. It was just that you you felt like you were in the forest. There wasn't a tree to be seen. It was great, wonderful. Uh, thank you, Catriona, for that, and thank you, Sarah, for, for that base in education. Uh, can I speak to you, André Dutois? 
Welcome. Andre Dutois, Dora Mavermore, award-winning lighting designer for theater based in Toronto. He's worked with everybody and he's marvelous. Uh, you'll, you'll be really impressed with the lighting design here today. There's not, um, the lighting really tells the story in this. It's extremely precise. It's as precise as the actors and it's quite hand in hand with what the actors are doing. Um, he uh, he uh, did the award-winning Tomaso's Party, which uh, he also produced, so producer too. Smart. He did the lighting design for Spent uh, with Theatre Smith Gilmore, Why Not Theatre, and Theatre Run that toured to New York, uh, the UK, and India this year. And we're looking back at having Andre back with us uh, for the Bad New Days production of The Double that's coming up in the studio. So you'll, when you see the two shows together, you'll see uh, that Andre certainly has his own style that's just his. Uh, Andre. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, this piece is told almost entirely with the bodies and voices of the actors. And what kind of challenge does that create for you as a lighting designer? Um, I think uh, it creates a great opportunity for lighting, obviously, because uh, the uh, we're talking actually. You were talking a lot about the uh, the visual, uh, the telling a story without the text, with the physicality, but it's also with the visual. You can tell a lot of stories through uh, what you see and, and creating visual images to put the story forward. So with this show in particular, they're, they're doing so many things with, uh, with their bodies. Uh, and uh, we, you, with lights, you can then shape their, their bodies and tell, help them tell that story. And what do you love the most about lighting design? What just what do you love about it? <laughs> um, I think it, uh, I really love the, uh, the ability to, uh, to uh, allow people to see things differently based on how the lights are, are affecting them and hitting them. You can really change how you perceive something with the way that you light it. And you can really help tell a story with, uh, with lighting and creating the environment uh, and, and a visual image. Yeah. And OK, so. I had to take a class in lighting design in school. It was probably my poorest class because I always kept calling blue warm. I always thought blue <laughs> was a warm color. Anyway, I know I'm wrong. I know I'm wrong. But, uh, but can you tell us now uh, about how you know where to light and what kind of tools do you use so that people, if they kind of want to check out for one second, though you won't want to really check out for too long, but just check out for a second and observe the lighting in the show as, it's, as an independent thing. What tools are you using? How do you figure it out? Uh, well, this play is uh, is a bit special because there is no uh, there's no set. It's a bit bare stage, so we are creating the entire environment with uh, with the lighting. Uh, the the um, so I would basically uh, now this show in particular because we've done it before. We're, we've had it in different spaces. We're moving in this space, so the approach is a bit different. But uh, you basically look at what uh, equipment the theater has, and you go to a lot of rehearsals to see what they're doing. Obviously, to see where they're doing that, so you can create, uh, you can help them tell that, uh, help them tell their their story. So I think the tools are the different colors, the different, um, the different types. Of, there's different types of lighting lights you can use, and the different angles and the the way that your the light is hitting someone. So in this play, for example, a lot of it is about the sun and the heat of the of the American South. So a lot of it is about how the sun, how the light is is hitting these and affecting the characters. And can you tell us, uh, there's very, very specific moments uh, on the stage. You'll see uh, there's a part where there's a woman lying on the, the ground. She's dead. And we, we have a very, very specific uh, light that hits her in a very, very specific way. She's, hit, she's on spikes. Can you tell people about spikes? Sure, yeah. Um, so uh, Cruel spikes, not like that. It's not cruel, so but like it spikes. is in a way because uh, the lighting... Uh, 
For this play, because uh, the book As They Lay Dying is told from the uh, point of view of several different characters, when we were developing the rehearsals for this play, we decided that we, sh we really wanted to see inside uh, these characters when they were, when they were speaking as opposed, to, as opposed to the action that's happening around them. So we developed this concept of having really tight lights hit them when, they're, when we're revealing their inner thoughts and what they're going through. So uh, the light is very tight on them. And if the actors are not standing six inches off in a different spot, the light won't hit them and you won't see them. So it's, uh, in addition to all the other things these actors are doing, the, I, we also, they also have to stand in a very exact spot. So we have little marks on the stage so they know exactly where the spots are. So it's actually quite technical what they're doing. In addition to uh, all the other marvelous work they're doing, they're having to go to exactly the same spot every day in each scene. So for example, in that scene, it's quite complicated because in the darkness, four of them have to emerge in one tight little spot. So it's quite a choreography to get them all in the same spot in the same amount of time every day. Yeah, you'll see that it is uh, it is extremely um, choreographed, and there uh, this uh, show is particularly punctuated by blackouts. So you you see these um, beautiful images pop up and then out and up and then out. And can you tell us a bit about the blackouts and how that plays in? Yeah, sure. The uh, well, the book is also is uh, the chapters are some of them are long and some of them are extremely short. Uh, and so, when we created the show, they also wanted to uh, create these different images. So yes, we we use the blackouts to to uh, to highlight those different fragmented uh, images throughout the throughout the play. Yeah, and it kind of feels like a chaptered um, book when you're watching it as well. And you get these beautiful tableaus of the actors. It, they, they kind of are they're very sculpted. Uh, in those moments, but each one could be an individual painting. Yeah, a, a lot of lighting is a lot of uh, a lot of times I look at paintings and and see uh, you know the great master painting masters really understood light and how that affects an image. And so uh, with this company in particular, they really uh, they really appreciate the visual image and creating that. So uh, a lot of it can be very painterly in terms of sort of um, uh, like a Caravaggio painting or something like that where you're, you're really using light to kind of help tell the story of where these people are, are living. And uh, are you able to tell us about, uh, there's scenic fog in the show as well. It's just a haze. Yes. It's not poisonous or anything weird. It's good for you, in fact. I think it's quite healthy. <laughs> it's water-based and uh, yeah, it makes you live longer for sure. It makes you live longer. So, uh, you know, because as theater does, Make you live longer, and so um, this is something that when uh, a lot of actor, a lot of actors, a lot of lighting designers and directors use that um, this haze uh, when you're trying to create shapes in the space, especially when you have no set to light, that you can actually create almost architecture with the lighting using this haze. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, it really uh, it really helps see you just see light. Uh, in this case, we use it uh, a lot of the scene in, set in the, in the American South, so it has that kind of oppressive heat, and and we wanted that feeling of uh, of the dust coming up, and there's a scene in the fire, and there's an underwater scene. So in a lot of the scenes, it really helps create space three-dimensionally, and, and this great thing about this stage is it's so high, you have a real height here as well. Um, and uh, we also, As They Dying talks a lot about windows, and there was a lot of images of, of light coming through windows, so the haze really helps us see those beams of light coming through the window and, uh, and hitting the, uh, the actors. And did you look at a lot of light in the novel and uh, how Faulkner talked about light, so you talk about it coming through windows and the heat of the American South. Did you, when you read the novel, did you, did you pick up uh, all of the references to light? Yeah, when I read the novel, obviously I was specifically looking for light as the lighting designer. So uh, I, I obviously, in terms of the light and the color, and some of the characters, like Darrell's chapters, really he, he's much more 
visual in his description of the, of the world around him. So his his sections were specifically uh, interesting in terms of in terms of translating his uh, his perception of the world onto the stage. Uh, and do you play pool? Uh, because I have to ask, because a lot of lighting designers uh, say that you can understand how to do your angles based on pool. Is that true? Uh, well, yeah, pool is about angles. Uh, I'm not a very good pool player. I see the angles, but I can't quite execute them on the pool table. But fortunately, uh, I don't need to, I guess. <laughs> You're pretty good at, at figuring it out with the, with the actors. Yes, it was also in the three dimensions. It helps, yeah. Yep. Okay, great. Uh, Today's performance, thank you, Andre. Thank you. Is, is there anything else you want to say about lighting? No. Okay. Uh, today's performance is another signed performance. We have uh, Carmel Cachero and Meg Reckett here with us again today uh, to do a signed performance for our uh, audience uh, members who are hard of hearing. So we're really pleased to have them again with us today. Uh, that's all I wanted to say about this. Does anybody have any questions for our guests today? Yes, hi. I noticed there's no mention of sound or music today, and I wonder if in this production that was a you know, strong decision not to have music or sound, or maybe there's songs, I don't know. And in other productions, how closely do you work with a sound designer? Uh, in this show, actually, the, there was quite a lot of sound. The, uh, the actors produced most of it themselves. Uh, it's sort of a folly kind of... Uh, Effects, so you'll uh, you'll hear the animals, uh, but as the actors are making a lot of those noises, uh, either on or off stage, with uh, with bricks and with um, with pieces of wood and and all sorts of things, and some of them we have pre-recorded that. There's a couple, uh, and there are a couple pieces of music, but there is no there is no actual sound designer, but there is quite a lot of sound. Dean uh, especially helped create a lot of the a lot of the sound and in this play uh, working with sound is very important there's a there's a there's a lightning and thunder scene obviously that all has to be coordinated so that the lightning goes with the thunder and the and that all makes sense so people know what's going on and uh, often uh, yeah sound designers and lighting designers do work in tandem a lot of the time to help uh, to help create the mood uh, and and bring out the emotions in the audience uh, and to help support what's going what's the story yeah, it's really interesting. The sound in the show is really fascinating. How the actors create that sound. There's a there's a the repetitive uh, sound of the the one of the boys is making a coffin for his mother, and the repetitive sound of him sawing. He's making the sound himself, so it goes perfectly with his action, of course. He, and he does that, and it it's actually this uh, this it's almost a meditation on on building a coffin for your mother. You know, it's this beautiful thing. But yeah, most of the sound is made by the actors. It's really incredible. Anybody else? Uh, first of all, I would like to compliment the lady on the end who does Company of Fools. I love it. <laughs> it comes every, every summer to Strathcona Park, and I don't miss it. But for the lighting, how long does it take you to set up? Do you have to be here long before the actors, or do you wait until the actors are there? Uh, well, in this case, because we've done the show before, it, this process was slightly different. I was just here a day before the actors, um, but often it will—you'll uh, be uh, several days before the actors uh, arrive in the space to set up the lighting and, and to try out different effects uh, and stuff like that before they come on stage. And then when the actors come on stage, we spend a lot of time together working out exactly where they should be standing and where they should be doing when the timing and all that sort of thing does, can take quite some time. I just wanted to say, because you, um, uh, our lighting designer just did this incredible gesture about talking about the height of the space um, in, the, in the theater, and it made me think about the height of the space in this room, 
And uh, it was just, I just wanted to share a moment of, of such gratitude for the incredible spaces that we have here at the National Arts Center, to be able to sit in this room and to have all of that space above us and then to be in the theater. And I think it's partly because of the show last night that I've sort of been re, uh, re-invited to look at the space that we're, that we're given to play in or to participate with. And it's really extraordinary because... As you'll see in the show today, there are these wonderful actors and this incredible light, and then us in the space. And it's it's rare. It's it's rarer and rarer with all the different things that we do to, to uh, distract ourselves from that. So, uh, I mean, this room, right? Anyway, just wanted to share a bit of a <laughs> some joy. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Yes, hi. Um, uh, Sarah talked about philosophical differences in the in the Paris schools there, and, and then you answered the question uh, about text and, and uh, physical and so forth, and it made me think more broadly, out of that kind of attitude, one could also imagine people talking about theater and dance or theater and music, and there are those sorts of things going on too about trying to understand, you know, where's the core of the meaning of all of this, and you have to pick from all of these things and so forth. Anybody want to? <laughs> Sure, yeah. No, I, I think there's a lot of... Uh, I think this company, we use... Uh, and also with the double that's coming up in a few weeks, uh, that if uh, one of the performers is a live musician. He plays the double bass on stage. And uh, both companies use a lot of physicality, which is a lot of dance. And we have choreo- choreography rehearsals where we're just kind of looking at the movement. And uh, so it, there's a lot of interplays, definitely. And I think the more, you know... Over the years, there, those uh, cross-pollination is getting more and more uh, profound and intense, and I think it's only great best for the audiences because the actors are becoming more physical and the dancers are becoming more uh, sometimes more story-based, and it's just creates lots of interesting, uh, interesting art. I think. I'd say too that culturally there's an opportunity for all for various backgrounds to to work together in a devised medium such as this or uh, when everyone's coming together to create the piece then everyone can come together from where they're from and create the piece and Humber uh, College in in Toronto is now starting to define itself as a theater for devised uh, work and Dean teaches there at Humber as do a lot of uh, Goyer and um, and uh, Lecoq uh, teachers and it's partly to uh, to look at this uh, incredible issue of what we are, uh, how we work as Canadians now, and that we're all coming from very different places to the work. So it's a it's a really democratic way of making story, and that's that's it, it, one of its strengths. And I think it's pro- probably why we'll start to see a lot more of it too. Yeah, if I may just speak to that as well. Um, so uh, Jillian mentioned that I I am a co-producer of an event called Subdivision, and that's a devised uh, a, a devised event, uh, event of devised theater. We celebrate independent devised theater in Ottawa. And um, our most recent incarnation was last week. The idea is that the actors get together in, uh, actors or companies get into a non-theater space and respond to what they see in that space or what they feel about that space and devise theater around it. And this most recent incarnation was in an art studio or in an art, uh, in, in Rich Bread Artists, which is an old bread factory that's been turned into art studios. And different companies were given different studios and different artists to work with. And they created pieces with the visual artists or in response to the visuals that they were given in that space. And a a whole uh, reason for wanting to do subdivision there in that place was to have that integration with with visual artists. And we also 
brought in some some musical artists as well, so that so that we can you know reach out because I think in the theater sometimes we tend to live in our own little bubble, just like um, when I was studying at Goliath, we <laughs> we would live in our own little bubble, and the Lecoq students would be in their bubble, and we'd go to parties together, and the Goliath students would be sitting in the corner smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey, and and the yeah, and the Lecoq people would be like doing movement and drinking tea. So, um, you know, but so, so we, we do, we, you know, we are, as has been said, I think we are more and more through devised theater and through this work, reaching out to integrate with other art forms. Yeah, you see that more and more in, in Canadian work. Uh, well, work right around the world, but in Canadian work. And, and certainly you'll see this coming up now in Robert Lepage's work that finishes our season, uh, Needles and Opium, which is an incredible piece of work that is a blend of uh, technical, uh, almost technical dance uh, and uh, storytelling, music and film. Thank you for coming to this. I hope you enjoy the show this afternoon. I know you will. And, uh, and I'll see you next time. Thank you, guys. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this edition of the Points of View podcast. Send us your comments and questions. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac-cna.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Search on Points of View. If you'd like to stay in touch with news and updates from the NAC English Theatre, sign up for a free e-bulletin by visiting nac-cna.ca slash email alerts. You can also find us on Facebook. Become a fan of the NAC English Theatre on Facebook by entering NAC English Theatre into the search bar. Until next time, this is Sean Fitzpatrick saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. This has been a National Arts Centre podcast produced in Ottawa by NAC New Media. Send us your comments and questions. Email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Visit the podcast section of the iTunes store where you can rate and comment on this podcast. We love to hear from you. Remember, you can find more great NAC podcasts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Centre on iTunes and subscribe for free. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.